And good morning. This is Alicia Bales. I'm live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax, and this is the local coronavirus update. Hey, Drew. Good morning, Alicia. So here we are again. Here we I are. hear everything's great with COVID, and it's all gone. It's all going away now. Yep. We never have to think about it again. <laughs> well, is it true? It is getting better. <laughs> I mean, we are way off that sharp peak that we had um, in January um, into the first week or two of February. Um, it was a markedly large peak. Um, I think the state of California peaked on the 15th. Um, the nation peaked on the 14th of January. Um, at its peak, we we're um, clocking about 800,000 confirmed COVID cases nationwide. Um, and now we're down to only 65,000. So we're back at the level where we were late September, early October of uh, 2021. Um, back kind of at the levels we were um, early last spring into early summer. Um, June, when we decided to take our hiatus, our national case count levels were around... 10 to 15,000 a day. Um, so we're still, you know, four or five times that number. But okay. it's dropping. So we're still in the Oh, there's, there's a lot of COVID. But hey, masks pandemic. come off and it's all good. That's, the, that's today, right? Today's National Mask Off Day or statewide Mask Off Day. How does this all work? I, don't ask me. I'm not in charge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not National Mask Off Day yet. I think that's the 11th, perhaps. Today is state mask off day and schools can do their own thing starting mm -hmm. in about 10 days um so so once again i'm left wondering like if we if we brought the levels down doing all of these measures and they're still actually historically pretty high why do we want to roll back the measures i yeah i i think it it has less to do with the science at this point and more to do with the politics um, the science is still quite clear if you don't want to get covid if you don't want to give other people covid you should wear a mask um but there's just a societal and political fatigue with all these restrictions i mean that's not anything revelatory right um and so i think at the institutional level at the governmental level um people want masks off people want more normal and it seems within reach at this point and it's not entirely unjustified um, you know it's it's it we're at a point um, if you do sort of back of the envelope calculation where somewhere around 80 to 85 percent of the population is either vaccinated or has had COVID um, and so there's we're approaching that sort of unicorn of herd immunity, if you will. The um, unicorn herd of immunity? Yes, it is a unicorn herd indeed. Um, they, they do travel in herds. I, not, I've heard that. Yeah, I'm not sure what a group of unicorns is called. Maybe a pointedness? A pandemic. <laughs> anyway, um, so we're getting to a point where it's not entirely unjustified. We're just... It, it, the The unspoken reality however is it throws the 20 million americans or so with significant immune compromise right under the bus um, because they are still at risk of yeah. getting covid and getting really sick and dying even if they are vaccinated um and so that is really not in the popular or even public or even governmental discourse at this point in time and that's yeah. it's outrageous frankly i am seeing a lot of discourse about that on social media from uh, disability activists Yes. Saying, well, you know, what about what, us? What, what about us, indeed? It, um, and, and, you know, the response to that 
partially is we now have a lot of treatment modalities. Um, and as the drug companies are finally starting to bring up production of some of these new drugs, um, and as case numbers are falling and demand is falling, we are close, we're not there yet, but we're close to having an adequate supply of some of these very effective treatments for people who have COVID. Um, and so that's good. That's very good. Um, but it's probably about a month premature to say masks off. Wow. Okay. Well, then that means that we're experiencing the pandemic just the same as we have been. Yes and no. I just came off six six shifts um, yesterday morning, finishing a big block. Um, and I saw a lot more um, mental health and drug-related problems and COVID. Um, that certainly was the tenor of the emergency room in the last week. Uh-huh. Um, some COVID, to be sure. Um, but um, a lot of other pandemics going on as well. When you, oh, that's a really good point. When you talk about mental health and drug-related issues showing up in the emergency room, do you, is that in, in any way related, or is this kind of back to normal? It's it's hard to you know sort of give a hard answer on that, if you will. Sorry for the awkward phrasing, but uh, there are certainly stressors that are making mental health much worse over the course of the last two years, um, which have driven up drug use, which have, you know, created um, more mental health problems, which then have pushed people into crisis. Um, So that has been driven by the pandemic. How much you know, what percentage is pushed by the pandemic, it's, it's hard to say, really. Um, we certainly have seen an uptick locally and nationwide in terms of drug use over the last two years, in terms of depression and suicidality and, you know, completed suicides. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's part of the pandemic. It's part of the excess mortality that we're seeing with the pandemic in the last two years. So when we talk about, you know, the 940,000 Americans who died from COVID, that's an undercount when you factor in all of the collateral costs um, that have been seen over the last two years. I was contacted by some reporters from a national media outlet about uh, they're they're researching the undercount of COVID deaths, and they found that Mendocino County has them among the most dramatic undercounts. So it's something like you know uh, we we've counted how many deaths now 150. 123. 123. And, and they're looking at excess deaths that are you know, much, yeah, much greater than that. It's hard to say. I, I think it would be very hard to extrapolate that um, too rigorously. This is a small county. The numbers are relatively low. Um, and there's going to be a lot of variation, a lot of noise, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not sure that Mendocino County, per se, is doing a better or worse job at accurately counting the number of COVID deaths. But we certainly have had excess mortality um, in this county over the last two years. And that's what they're referring to that's what they're seeing when they do that data analysis who's responsible for tracking that and reporting it oh, that is a good question i i mean I, it goes through the public health department that goes to the state of california public health and that's that's where the numbers are consolidated and crunched but i'm not certain as to who that individual uh-huh. is probably carmel angela now now <laughs> <laughs> but she's leaving big she's changes leaving. afoot yes. yeah march 20th yeah. Right. i did a big interview with her well, last good. week i heard you did yeah oh. and then i read about it in the Kyle daily journal are you serious no no okay good all right. all right, should we get it to the numbers yeah, before let's we do get the too numbers. far into the weeds here? And then we'll open up the phone lines. All right, so uh, we are adding around only around 20 cases a day right now. Um, so in two weeks, wow. we've added 225 cases. Uh, we're up to 
12,814 confirmed COVID cases. Um, about a third of those are since Christmas. So we're talking about a two-year pandemic, um, you know, 12,000 plus cases in the county and about 4,000 since uh, Christmas. Um, hospital utilization is still relatively high, uh, can, you know, looking at the average over two years. We have about nine hospitalized um, as of Friday. The county hasn't updated the data since Friday. Um, a couple in the ICU, four more deaths in the last two weeks. Um, but numbers uh, locally are coming down. We're down um, about... 40 percent um in two weeks in terms of case counts california is down to around 12,000 cases a day um and then nationally as i referenced we're down to about 65,000 cases a day which is about a 60 percent drop over two weeks um and mortality uh finally fortunately is showing sustained drop we're down about 25 percent nationwide mortality hospital utilization is manageable um, which is one of the rationales for walking back this masking requirement. So locally, you know, we are full. Hospitals generally pretty full still, um, but we are getting beds um, and we are transferring out unless somebody needs some sort of specialized care that is scarce, you know, even without a pandemic. And how has that changed over the last few weeks? It's eased. It, the, the sort of the sense of crush has eased considerably. So people who have to go into the hospital for other procedures are finally able to get in? Oh, yeah. Elective procedures. I mean, there's a lot of catch-up to be done, mm -hmm. to be sure, um, still, even over the two years. Um, but, yes, that is occurring. Um, but, you know, it's still there's still a backlog, to be sure. And how are the healthcare workers doing? We're hearing a lot about... Uh, attrition and also about people getting actually getting sick and having to be out of work yeah that's that also is improving uh, you know they're much like the rest of society the the, the surge in um, late December early January through the whole month of January you know made a lot of us sick um, not not critically sick because on the whole we're almost all vaccinated um, but um, a lot of people contracted Omicron and a lot of us were out uh, for 10 days or two weeks depending on how sick we got um, and that also has eased I mean there's still obviously still a significant crunch um, in terms of healthcare workers in this county um, but that's not novel and that's not mm. unique to Mendocino one more question before we open up the phone lines, which is uh, last time, two weeks ago, we talked about the booster and its sort of waning efficacy over time. Mm -hmm. Is that still how people are thinking about the booster, or do we know anything yeah, more been, about it? Yeah, there have been a lot of headlines recently, um, which if you look behind the headline a little bit, it, it things tend to be less um, startling. Um, so we've seen headlines about the pediatric vaccine being less effective. We've seen headlines about the boosters maybe not being necessary um, because there's some movement on the margins about our understanding of how this works. The boosters, the immunity um, still Still wanes. Uh, that that has still been borne out. There've been a few studies in the last two weeks talking about not just antibodies, but some of the more complex cells that are harder to track, the B and T cells, and how that is um, producing still sustained immunity um, even um, with a with a single booster that's you know four or five months stale. That's probably true, um, but the data is still kind of unsettled at this point um and so 
the general recommendation is still certainly to be boosted. Um, I think ultimately people who are immune suppressed or elderly, so we're talking over probably 75, are going to get an annual booster or maybe even every six month booster as we continue to have a fair amount of COVID in our communities. Oh, but not everybody. Perhaps not. Perhaps not. It really depends on sort of how this plays out, how many cases we see in people who have been immunized um, remotely. It might be more like tetanus where we get a a booster every five or seven years or every three years. It's, you know, it's, it's evolving data at this point. Okay. Stay tuned. Yes. Yeah, really. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like the post-apocalyptic COVID endemic future that I was afraid of. Well, COVID, COVID is COVID is here to stay. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we'll be. And, and you know, the the next strain may be right around the corner. That's the Drew Colfax yes. that I'm I'm yes. used to. Okay, <laughs> let's go ahead and open up the phone lines. This is the local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. We're here until 10 o'clock uh, with the latest kind of COVID news and also answers to your questions. So we'll go ahead and take our first call. Ah, but let me remind you, the phone number is 707-895-2448. That's 707-895-2448. Good morning, Call. You're live on the air. Hi. Well, here's my question. Um, for those who had uh, two COVID booster, two COVID shots, and then a COVID booster, and are up for a second booster, are you better off to get the Moderna or the or the uh, Pfizer? Yeah, that's that's. Uh, a good question. A lot of people sort of spend a lot of time agonizing as to which vaccine to get, either as in the primary series or as a booster um, or as a second booster, although that is still fairly limited in its rollout because it's not yet any official recommendation except for people um, who have um, significant immune suppression or solid organ transplant, stuff like that. Um, so I- in general, I wouldn't uh, recommend um, choosing one versus the other. There's really just not good data to suggest um, that one is better than the other. There has been a little bit of information, a little bit of data showing that Moderna might be a little bit better against Omicron, um, but that's fairly marginal, and at an individual level, it makes almost no difference at all. Okay. Well, thanks for that information. Yep. Thanks for the show. Of course. All right. Thanks for the call. So basically just get boosted. Get boosted. Um, But his question was regarding reboosting, which is um, still not really upon us. Right. I was wondering about that. Yeah. There isn't any advice about reboosting. But people can talk to their own doctors. People can about talk it, to right? their providers at the at the healthcare centers. Um, you know, the very elderly or the significant at risk population probably should um, be reboosted um, just to make certain that the immune response remains topped off, if you will. Um, but that's that's a bit controversial, and I hesitate to create too much anxiety for listeners who then call healthcare centers mm-hmm. and say are, are told no. Um, Drew told but, me to call you. Yeah, exactly. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Good morning. Um, I am uh, vaccinated, and I understand that the vaccination is primarily so that you are um, protected against the serious aspects of COVID. My question is this, though. Um, you can, as 
a vaccinated person can both get COVID and transmit COVID. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And so is there any difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated people in the transmission of the virus? In other words, yes. would is there? Okay. Yeah. So Please explain that. Yeah. So people who are vaccinated i mean it, these are these are generalities out you know that are, if, that is that are extracted from public health data but it appears that the vaccinated population um is about 50 percent less likely to spread covid to other individuals than the unvaccinated um that's okay. that's kind of a rough you know, gestalt estimate that might change with better data, but that's kind of where most uh, public health people are putting the putting the estimate right now. Is it also are vaccinated people also uh, less likely to get the virus than unvaccinated people? Well, maybe. Um, you know, the, the it's hard to track that precisely um, because I think what. Well, what we know is that the vaccinated people are much more likely to have an asymptomatic infection um, or a minimally symptomatic infection. And so, you know, a, a vaccinated individual or a vaccinated and boosted individual might get COVID, um, uh, but the likelihood that they're not going to know it is much greater uh, when compared to the unvaccinated population. So that's a little bit hard to put one's finger on it. What we know about viruses and vaccines is, you know, points to toward the fact that even a vaccinated individual will probably harbor the virus briefly before the immune system knocks it out. Um, and so does that count as getting COVID? Technically, yes, um, but that individual is probably not really shedding COVID in a way that um, has any public health ramifications. Okay. Thank you very much. Yep. All right. Thanks for the call. 707-895-2448 is the number here in the studio. It's the local coronavirus update with Dr. Drew Colfax and Alicia Bales. Hello, Alicia. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a call last, last week, two weeks ago, um, about uh, whether somebody should exercise after getting vaccinated. Oh, yeah. That so yes. That caller then sent me an article, um, which was interesting. Um, it was a study that was you know, pretty good, certainly not definitive or dispositive, uh, suggesting um, that exercise does, in fact, boost your antibody response to the vaccine. So... I hadn't seen it. It had not even come close to landing on my radar. Um, but it suggests that you might want to consider getting vaccinated after uh, exercising after being vaccinated. I don't know. It's one study. What's I, it do? It just raises the heart rate and gets everything moving around in there? Yeah, the, the biology of how that works is a little bit unclear, um, honestly. So whether that gets borne out in a significant way, it's one of these things. Um, it might be like the blood type thing that we talked about a year and a half ago or so. Um, but it was interesting to see that study. So kudos to that caller and uh, the reference. Yeah. You know, I heard oh, we have a call. Let's take that. Good morning, caller. You are live on the air. Caller, that's you. Okay. We may not have Sorry a about that, caller. Good morning, caller. You are live on the air. Hi. How you doing? Um, so I was calling because there's a risk of myocarditis, myocarditis, myocarditis with uh, getting the vaccine. So, like, working as you get the vaccine and making your heart pump and expand seems kind of dangerous. Um, and you ever talk about possible side effects? So I was just wondering if you have anything other than just like 
You have to get boosted. You have to get vaccinated. Like, maybe work out and get some sun and eat right and those sort of things. Well, working out, <laughs> working out, exercising, eating right are all certainly advisable. Getting some sun is a little bit more controversial. It depends if you're talking to a dermatologist or not. Um, but yes, uh, you, you broke up a little bit, but it sounds it sounds like. Thank you much. I'm happy. I'm happy you get vaccinated, so. Sorry, Kali, you are really breaking You're up. You're breaking up, but I will speak perhaps to your broken up question about myocarditis. Um, that is a risk with the vaccine. Um, there are fairly rigorous um, bodies of data now that show that there is a risk, particularly um, prevalent in the younger population. Um, but even in that younger population, the risk of COVID-induced myocarditis is uh, many times higher. Um, and in the older population, the risk of myocarditis induced by a vaccine drops, whereas the risk of myocarditis induced by COVID climbs. So if you talk about a risk sort of benefit analysis strictly regarding um, the uh, controlling COVID-induced myocarditis, um, the benefit still weighs toward getting the vaccine. That's setting aside all the other um, benefits that we know of a less severe illness from COVID and the other more unusual or uncommon um, side effects of the vaccine. So it's... It's, it's a risk. Um, it's manageable. It's rare, um, but it's not, you know, vanishingly rare. I've seen a case. Uh, one of my other providers in this county has seen a case of what we think was vaccine-induced myocarditis. They did fine, um, okay. but, you know, it's still kind of alarming when you have an inflamed heart, right? Your heart's a little bit important. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I've also seen people in Florida heart failure, many more people in Florida heart failure from COVID, um, you know, from, from, okay. the, from the respiratory components backing up into the heart and causing people to, you know, really do poorly and, you know, succumb from COVID. So it's... Okay. Okay. I think cool. perhaps I, I'm, you're more clear now. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it answers my question greatly, perfectly. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. All right. All right. Thanks for the call. I'm yeah. sure you're not the only person who had that question. Yeah, when you're talking about it not being vanishingly small, what do you mean in terms of myocarditis? And, and you said people do pretty well? Yeah, so myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart, and viruses can cause it, um, and vaccines can cause it. It's not just the COVID vaccine that can cause it. Um, and that inflammation, much like an inflammation of any muscle, causes pain. It causes soreness. Um, it can even cause the heart function to decrease a bit um, for a while. Um, the cases that I've seen um, and the cases of myocarditis I've seen over the years um, pre, pre-COVID um, tend to be fairly mild um, with a very good recovery. But what you see during the acute phase are electrical changes in the heart um, and blood tests that show inflammation in the heart. Um, you can get an echo and you might see a little bit of decreased um, ability of the heart to pump. You recheck in two to three weeks and those individuals are back to normal uh-huh. in the vast majority of the cases. What causes it other than vaccines and COVID? And vi- virus, other viruses. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, there's, there are a lot of viruses that can trigger it. Um, a small number are not really, you know, ascribed to any particular causality. It just can be... Unknown, yes. idiopathic, yes, huh. yeah, idiopathic. Yeah, it means the doctor's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I 
and pathetic. Yeah, exactly. uh, it's 707-895-2448. The lines are open. Wide open. People, people don't are, have People COVID are moving questions. on. Yeah, they're taking their masks off. They're going to school. They're shopping. There's other stuff. Drum circles, indoor drum circles. In, indoor cool. drum circles unmasked yeah. with yes. lots of singing. Choirs, yes, exactly. It's the good old days again. Well, let's not get too carried away. <laughs> um, but, you know, before we take another call, you know, there, let's talk about some of the treatment modalities that we're, we have in the county now. So one thing that hasn't received much attention, um, you know, a lot of people talk about monoclonal antibodies, um, particularly the people who have elected not to be vaccinated. There seems to be a willingness to have an engineered experimental use authorization, emergency use authorization Um infusion of a monoclonal antibody, but there's also a long-acting uh, monoclonal antibody that's an intramuscular injection that is administered to people as a pre-exposure prophylaxis. So people are given it um, prophylactically to prevent them from getting severe COVID. Um, that drug came down the pike um, in December, and it's actually now reaching our community. It's still very limited, um, but for people who are immune suppressed, who are on potent immune suppression medications or have a solid organ transplant, an intramuscular injection of that, um, mono, that synthetic monoclonal antibody actually affords protection against contracting and getting severe COVID. And it appears that that immunity, that protection lasts about six months. Interesting. Um, so that's actually available. Um, Paxlovid, this second big blockbuster drug from Pfizer is now more or less um, reliably available. It's a pill that you need to start within five days. We've talked about it in the past, but that's generally in stock in pharmacies in this county at this point. So if you start to get sick, if you're a little bit more elderly, if you have risk factors, it would be a very good idea to get tested right away and consider um, going on a course of Paxlovid because it is a very effective drug with a very good safety profile. It does have a lot of drug-drug interactions, so you might need to go off one of your other drugs if you're going to go on it. It's not a quick decision for any provider to put somebody on something like that, but it's it's a very effective drug, and those two drugs are, you know, here in the county. Wow, that's a really different story than yes. two weeks ago. Well, when you uh, your case counts drop by eighty percent, right? Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, we have another call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Hi, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the B2 variant. Thank you very much. Yeah, so the B2 variant got a bit of press a couple of weeks ago. We're all sort of trying to, you know, it's like trying to pick the the winner of the Kentucky Derby, right? You know, who's what's going to be the next variant and who's going to see it first and flag it as, you know, the one that's going to explode upon us like Omicron did. It doesn't appear that B2 is going to be the variant that does that. Um, it has, it appears, now I might be proven wrong, but it appears that it is more or less being swamped out by the success of the original Omicron variant um, and the considerable number of people that have um, contracted that variant. So B2 hasn't really gained too much traction yet um but you know stay tuned it might it might prove me wrong um i think it'll probably fade away and we probably haven't even identified which strain is going to become you know more prominent um over the course of the next six to eight months but what that looks like we don't really know um it's just it's not really clear with a population that's 80 85 percent um 
antibody positive for COVID of all flavors, what a new strain is going to look like. It's not certain. Um, now, if that new strain can evade our immune response, then we'll be back on a twice-weekly basis, I'm afraid, Alicia. But Back to square one. Yeah, well, hopefully not. You know, It might just be a new virus entirely. Is that an option, too? We'll have of to change the is. name of the show. Yeah. yeah. B2 variant. That must be a variant of Omicron. Otherwise, it would have its own Greek it letter. It would, yes. Yeah. I, you know, it's Greek. Then there's a letter. Then there's a number. Yeah. So it's not just and then a hashtag. Omicron B. <laughs> hashtag yeah. this sucks. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, but we good go- question. Stay tuned. You know, I, I don't think B2 is going to really drive the narrative too much. Um, but, I, you know, the likelihood or the possibility that we see another strain that does become sort of more deadly and drives mortality back up again is, you know, likely. Um, and while we're talking about, about mortality, um, you know, over the last two years, um, COVID has been the number three driver of mortality in this country. Um, there's cancer. There's cancer of all sorts combined um, heart disease of all sorts and then covid um so it's you know it's it's killed a, a nearly a mil, million americans uh, we'll cross that threshold probably by the end of april um so a far cry from the handful of cases to the 60,000 cases the 60,000 deaths to the 150,000 deaths um, that we at first anticipated yes, yes yeah well and if we could wear a mask to stop the, stop cancer or heart disease we'd jump at it right right all right 895-2448-707-895-2448 it's the local coronavirus update here on our bi-weekly every other week configuration alternating with marvin trotter and mind body health here on tuesday mornings let's take our next call good morning caller you are live on the air yeah hi alicia um i just heard you say if we could wear a mask to stop cancer or heart disease we would jump at it and i think we would jump at it if we it would stop covid too but it you know it was the third biggest killer you said so it didn't really stop covid so i think that's why everybody is so frustrated with these mask mandates because COVID just went up and up and up. At the same time, uh, we were asked to do things like have our kids learn it on a tablet. You know, I'm trying to keep my kids off the media, not force them on and not visit old people. Um, I mean, I I lost uh, three people in my life, not due to COVID over this last two years, wasn't able to see them, not because of COVID, but because of the restrictions. America has handled this worse than any other country by far in the world. And I just say, if there is another pandemic, and hopefully there's not, although everybody keeps saying, and oh, yeah, it's common, it's common, but hopefully there's not. We handled it much, much better than we did this one. Yeah, though, just to be clear, I mean, you're, you're making a fallacy when you say that our masks um, must have failed because we have a million deaths in this country. Um, our masks are quite effective at preventing transmission of COVID. They have vastly reduced the amount of mortality and morbidity. They have suppressed the surge in the hospitals that would have been much worse um, if we had not been masking. So that's, that's a little bit of a fallacy there, but you're 
you speak quite accurately about um, all of the collateral costs, all of the costs on our children in terms of the isolation at home, the um, the inability to see loved ones, particularly when they are dying in hospitals. Um, that is a harsh um, and you know controversial decision that a lot of states and counties made that directly impacted me as a provider, um, having you know to talk to family members and act as an intermediary in those very difficult times. But you know the. Yeah. So, but your your point is well taken. It also your your frustration. I think bespeaks why we're walking away from masks right now, right? I mean, I hear your frustration. I think we're all frustrated. Masks work, but we're just sick of it, right? And we're sick of all of this other stuff. Children are, you know, not great at wearing masks. They're in school. They should be in school, and they would probably do much better in school, not having any of these social distancing and masking requirements. But you know, the vaccine is still emergency use authorized for children so school districts aren't going to require vaccination for attendance and so there aren't easy decisions around any of this um honestly doctor yeah can i ask you uh, because my kids did get COVID in school i yep. mean wouldn't have known it i don't know how they all hang out together right up in each other's faces but uh two of them did get COVID. you wouldn't they, they, they wouldn't know it if you didn't tell them. Nobody right. would have known it if they didn't tell them because they didn't have a symptom, not even a little bit. And, and I mean, I never got it through the whole pandemic. And they were up in my face all the time, as they always are. So I, I just wonder, I, I guess I'm wondering why masks would be relevant in school or necessary. And I'm asking you, just honestly, do you have any study at all that proves that masks work? Because we did have a country that actually didn't mask, Switzerland and Sweden, and they did better than us. No, they and didn't. No, no, think- no, no, no. Hold on. They did worse. Um, and there are literally thousands of studies that show masks work. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure where your confusion there uh, stems from, but masks well, well, have been... Well, I'm proven- telling you, 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 you just, you just interrupted me. Let me just tell you, Sweden has less deaths per million than we do. Definitely. Less, less cases per million than we do. And we at least tried to wear masks. I mean, you yeah, know, let's Sweden, say half the country did. Sweden has a has an organized, unified um, health care system, and it had mortality that was many-fold higher, um, or at least several-fold higher, than its adjoining neighbors with, an, with equivalent organized health care system. So it did worse than it should have. Um, and it did worse because it went for this misguided uh, natural herd immunity without restrictions. Um, and I can't imagine what I can't imagine what would have happened in our inept um, response to this pandemic if we hadn't sort of fumbled through our isolation and our masking and our lethargic uptake of vaccines once they became available. You know, we, I agree. And, you know, if anybody who's listened to me for the last two years will know that I have not been exactly pleased with our governmental and our healthcare response during this pandemic. Uh, we have done terribly. Um, our mortality is higher than any other country in the world um, per capita. And we have the most expensive um, dysfunctional healthcare system one could possibly conceive, um, and that has translated to a, you know, just a disaster, an unfolding slow disaster of a response during this entire pandemic. Fortunately, you know, we're on the downside we of it. Com- we don't have a completely dysfunctional. We're not the worst. I mean, we are still a first world country. We do have a very good healthcare. 
Um, when no, no, we, there, have, I, we have a terrible health care system. Are you kidding? We have, a, we have a 19% of GDP goes to health care, and yet our our metrics for delivery of health care and health care outcomes are you know, not even close to Europe's uh, standards. Not even well, close. Have you ever gotten sick in a third world country, though? Yes, I have. I mean, yes, I have. And, yeah. and they have better health care than, than you would get here in the States, I, I, I'm not comparing the United States health care system to, you know, Niger's, um, to pick okay. a country, but uh, compared to, say, Great Britain or France or Germany um, or your beloved Sweden, you know, our health care system is, you know, it's just... It's just incomprehensible. Um, and it's, okay. it's seen and experienced by anybody who comes into the emergency room, you know, if they, if they want to be transferred, if they need particular procedures. You start to talk about insurance and billing and hospital transfers and helicopters and all these things that are not really organized under an umbrella that works in a way that it should. If this were a business, if the, and it is a business, but if it were a private business, it would fold within weeks, right? I mean, you know, Amazon gets you a roll of toilet paper in 24 hours, but, you know, trying to get some with a mangled hand to a hospital where they need to be can take you know three times longer well i just to go back to the uk which you mentioned great britain and also sweden i mean sweden did much better than the uk in terms of deaths and cases and uk did mask quite a bit and i don't know why we always have to cherry pick norway and finland which have half the population of sweden and much much less world impact that's like comparing new york to vermont I mean, yes, they're geographically close, but they do not—they do not have the same international connection with the world. Um, so I don't think that you know. We always say, "Oh, Sweden, yeah, they did, you know, better than us, but you know, not as good as Norway." Well, you, they did, you, they you're did the one who brought up Sweden, not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, I know, but you're, you're saying they didn't do as good as Norway. Like, who cares if they didn't do as good as Norway? One country, we cherry picked that one we country. We didn't they do did as good better as than Norway. the UK, which is also right there geographically. So okay, so, so I'm just saying, caller. You your know, point I is that heard you say a study that that, that evidences that masks work, but I'm telling you, there's a real life epidemiological study going on in the world that shows that masks clearly don't work. And even the CDC came out and said, oh yeah, the cloth cloth masks really don't work. So I mean, we we're just getting that evidence. We, we all walked around with basically the equivalent of a shoe on our head for two years. Okay, All well, right. that's the point of view. Thank we, you. Thank you for your call. It's been most entertaining. All right, so I didn't have a shoe on my head, did you? I Well, I occasionally have a shoe on my head, you, but oh, no. not out in public. Oh. <laughs> but the caller's right. I mean, the, the cloth mask, the bandanas, the gaiters, I mean, that's just, they just don't work, honestly. Bandanas and gaiters, but the other ones do have some effectiveness, Yes, right? of course, you know. I mean, I, I would like to see that that individual, you know, discuss whether his surgeon is going to be masked when he goes in for, you know, his eventual need for surgery, right? So it's, it's, yeah, but anyway. Okay. Yeah. For, the, for a future episode, we have another caller. Good morning, caller. You are live on the air. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it's sometimes you just one of those things where it doesn't matter. All you can do is lay the facts, the empirical scientific facts out there and people can decide. Um, as far as efficacy of masks, I would like to know how many in the last few years, I mean, I know personally, anecdotally, but the reduction of regular flu and other virus 
viral air transmitted diseases because people were wearing masks. Yeah, no. I bet you there's a. Re- I bet. I, I'm just going to say. I bet you there's a reduction in that, and that, and that is proof positive right there. Empirical scientific fact. Sorry, garbage truck was but just went by. Fact. I know people think fact's a four letter word in this county. Um, that they do work. So that's just right there. Uh, I'm glad you addressed that. The other thing that just seems to be sticking around that these, I can do whatever I want and screw everybody else around me, um, the natural immunity thing. Uh, If you could address that, that, yeah, you may have gotten COVID a year and a half ago, but that doesn't mean that you have immunities for all the other variants. If you could please address that, that just seems to be sticking around and we should put a spike in its heart right away. Yeah, so, Thank you. So your, your call, your reference to influenza is actually quite quite interesting. I mean, in the last two years, um, as we've been wearing masks, the last two flu seasons, uh, we really haven't had much of a flu season. The respiratory season um, last year, when there was much more isolation and much greater uptake of mask wearing, um, we just didn't see flu at all. Um, and I wouldn't say that is a slam dunk evidence of the efficacy of masks, but it certainly points toward how and why masks um, work, um, and how they work, and how they reduce transmission of these respiratory diseases. Um, so, yes, good point. Um, secondly, your your immunity, uh, natural immunity um, point is also well taken. People who have had COVID, um, and some people now have had, you know, it was an illness that was a year ago, all right, or even longer for the unfortunate early adopters of COVID. <laughs> um, you know, that immunity has waned. Um, and I have seen more than a few people who have come through the ER with a second round of COVID. Um, and they were shocked to learn that they could get COVID again. This is not chickenpox, folks. You can get it again. Um, and you may get it again. The best way to prevent that is to join the ranks of the people with hybrid immunity. That's the best immunity, frankly. It's quite clear that if you have been vaccinated and then also have COVID, you have sort of the most robust um, immune system for fighting future COVID exposures. Um, And so there's really no reason to not get vaccinated um, if you've previously recovered from COVID. Most people or significant people, uh, you know, the caller's um, experience is a little bit different from mine, um, but I'm probably biased because I'm seeing people sick enough to come to the emergency room. But uh, the, the majority of people who come in with COVID um, who are unvaccinated um, or have been reinfected with COVID and are presenting to medical attention, they're, they're questioned soon after I tell them they have COVID again um, is when can I get vaccinated? Um, because people suddenly, you know, sort of realize that they're tired of Right. Going I'm going to get this, this again yes. and again. Does it get worse the second or third time or does it get more mild it's it, it's idiopathic uh okay. it's idiosyncratic rather excuse me it's you know some people um seem to have a worse illness the second time around the majority um tend to have a more mild illness but again my my sampling is biased because i'm seeing people who are sick enough to come be right. assessed by a healthcare worker um and so the people that i'm seeing even if it's a second go around are typically feeling pretty lousy um you know, not lousy enough to be hospitalized typically, but, you know, lousy enough to come and make sure there's nothing serious going wrong. All right, let's take our next call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Good morning. I have a flu question. 
uh, related to the COVID question uh, that's coming off of the masking question, which is, okay, two years with very low flu incidence. Are the flu viruses sitting back in the wings going, oh, boy, let's mutate and get really, really strong, seeing as how we haven't been out there. Yeah, no, the flu the flu is a little bit unusual because the flu changes every season. Um, there's a new strain that emerges, um, typically um, from Southeast Asia, um, every year. And it is highly contagious, obviously, and it circles the globe. And then it's a new strain the following year. And so the, the CDC um, and the WHO have the unfortunate and unenviable job of trying to predict which strain is going to become dominant about a year in advance. And that's how much time is required for them to formulate the flu vaccine. They pick three strains. Um, sometimes they're spot on and sometimes they're not so spot on. But the fact that the flu pan, the flu season over the last two years has been fairly mild does not point to increased risk of a more severe flu season uh, in the years going forward. That won't translate into sort of an increased risk of mutation pointing toward a more virulent strain. Now, what it might um, point toward is we're going to have a slightly more naive population um, because we haven't been exposed as much to flu over the course of the last two years. Um, But that's, that's probably a fairly marginal increase in risk. Mildly reassuring. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> mildly reassuring indeed, right? And, you know, we all, a lot of us tend to be rather lackadaisical about getting the flu shot. Um, the flu shot in general um, works pretty well. Some years it works extraordinarily well, and other years it doesn't work so well. Some flu seasons are really deadly, um, and some are kind of more benign in terms of the, the course of the illness for people who contract influenza. It's hard to predict that in advance. Um, In general, as each flu season um, gets underway, sort of mid-November, if you will, uh, we have a sense of what strain it is and how good a match it is for the the vaccine. But by then, you already want to be vaccinated uh, for flu. Um, And so it's it's kind of a difficult... um, process to sort of seriously elucidate for the population at a whole other than to say get your flu shot because we don't really know what's going to what the season's going to look like okay to, to sum up here you're sort of saying that with um covid the fewer people you know the more people who get it the fewer people who are vaccinated the more the covid vaccine can sit around and mutate and get stronger but that doesn't apply to COVID. Not in the same way. Flu flu um, mutates um, on a seasonal basis. There are multiple strains of influenza that emerge each year. Um, and in general, one or two of those strains becomes the worldwide dominant strain. And then it's a new strain the following year, or typically it's a new strain the following year. Whereas COVID and this pandemic, um, you know, we've seen multiple strains sort of emerging all over the place. If you look at the the COVID strain map, it you know it looks like a looks like a bowl of spaghetti, right, with the great big huge sort of 
of noodle of Omicron swamping everything out over the course of the last two years, uh, two months. Um, but flu is not quite like that. Flu is much more sort of a regular seasonal th- seasonal thing. Think of a wave coming up on a beach. Um, you know, sometimes you get a big wave, um, and you know, every hundred years or so, you might get a sleeper wave or a tsunami of a flu season. Um, but there's not increased risk of that tsunami striking next year just because we've had fairly well controlled flu seasons the last two. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. Yep. All right. Eating spaghetti at the beach. Yep, exactly. Okay. 895-2448 is the number. The lines are open. I'll take our next call. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So I I would like um, to hear some comments on uh, the crises, uh, worldwide crises, war, climate refugees, migrations, um, and the impact that surely will result from the messes that we have going on um, that will erupt in um, many different kinds of diseases, including coronavirus, uh, continuation of the uh, variations of coronavirus and all of that horror. Um, so anyways, I'll, I'll listen to what uh, you have to say on that. So, straying a little bit from our local coronavirus update um, show here, I, you know, it, 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 I think your call and your question, your statement, really, uh, really bespeaks kind of the pessimism that um, public health officials have, epidemiologists have, virologists have about um, the likelihood uh, that a new pandemic is going to emerge. We are just messing with nature, to put it scientifically, way too much uh, to not expect um, another virus to emerge from some disrupted ecosystem um, somewhere and to you know sweep the globe again where whether it's going to come out of an animal vector or some other sort of vector that we haven't even thought of we don't know but that I think um, is inevitable and I think most people who think about this uh, know that's inevitable whether it's going to happen in my lifetime or my children's lifetime I don't know, but the rapidity of our destruction and all our alteration of the globe um, points toward it coming at a more frequent interval than anything we've experienced over the last, you know, couple hundred years, at least in the last in the modern era of science and healthcare delivery. Did COVID come from messing with nature? Well, it came, you know, more and more data is pointing toward the fact that it came from an animal market um, in Wuhan, China, which unfortunately also has, you know, one of the main virology labs in the world studying oh. <laughs> coronaviruses. Weird. So the, 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 the opportunity for uh, conspiracy theorists, or not necessarily conspiracy theorists, but for people to be confused um, is, is ripe. Um, but you know, COVID came from, um, we think, people um, buying and selling and eating wild animals, you know, going into the, you know, what remains a fairly rugged um, jungle or forest in China and bringing these animals out and slaughtering them and eating them, but selling them. that seems kind of like the history of the human species. Like, we've been doing that since we, yeah, we but, you know, became human. Sure, but, you know, the... 
other sort of big pandemic in uh, of our lifetime, HIV, came from a similar sort of vector, right? Um, you know, more and more data shows it probably emerged from a primate vector in Central Africa, you know, from people capturing and eating wild um, primates. Coming into contact um, with their blood. You know, back in the four, 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gradually, you know, it's a much more difficult to transmit virus but that's where it came from um and you know this thing just came popping out of wuhan you know all at once mm-hmm. um what's gonna you know what's gonna be the next one we don't know but it's certainly going to involve humans going where humans generally should not all right we have and, you know in the setting of eight billion people there's just you yeah. know there's we're ripe for you know rapid transmission of and a, Viruses. A, a totally yes. integrated globe. Yes. All right. We're going to see if we can take this one more call. Hey, caller, you are live on the air. Oh, hi. Since there are many calls, I thought I'd call and make more of a fast comment here. I, there were two previous callers, and one just talking about the vaccine. <laughs> other countries are doing better than us, and the other caller following up says, don't confuse me with the facts. Um yeah, you know, an 86-year-old cousin called me a couple of weeks ago, hadn't talked in a long time. Just She just said to say hello, and she informed me that she had lost two cousins. They were two cousins out of a, a sibling group of three, and the remaining living cousin said, are you coming to the funeral? And she says, no, because you don't vaccinate, you don't wear masks. Somebody lost two siblings, and they still didn't want to vaccinate and mask. So um, it's like the caller says, I've made my mind up. Don't confuse me with the facts. So you could choose life or death, I guess, depending on how <laughs> And Alicia, you gave me a, a good good chuckle laugh a few shows back when uh, Dr. Colfax said the Omicron's more infectious, and you said something like, oh, do we got a distance twice twice as far an hour <laughs> I think it was a nervous reaction on my part, but and the other thing that you know there is the inverse square law that says you know you're inversely squared to the proportional of the distance, which means if uh, you move back even half the distance, you're uh, four times less of anyway. Like in cinematography and radiation, if you need four times the light, you don't go four times closer. It's it's less. But anyway, and the other thing on this freedom. Two court cases, Dr. Colfax, if there's time, could just comment on them. But, uh, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, many years ago, uh, chief, and, um, he was a justice on the Supreme Court, said freedoms aren't absolute. Uh, you know, you can't yell fire in a cr- falsely yell fire in a crowded theater to make a theater panic. And it's like, well, your freedom not to wear a mask is not the freedom to kill other people because your nostrils become a weapon you know it's and the other thing was i was curious here about uh, the federal government being able to regulate mask wearing and vaccinations across the country and i thought well we have what's called the interstate commerce clause in the constitution and i thought well can't they use that and when i started to do a little research, I found that I think 1909 or 1907, this issue about the government being able to regulate masks, to have mask mandates, and well, actually, I think it was a vaccination mandate, 
in a, in a, I think it was the Jacobson versus the All right, caller, we're going to have to leave it there. Yeah. We, we okay. are running out of Bye. time. Thank Bye. you so Bye. much for calling. Appreciate I, that. Interesting. I, I hate what a longer comment would have sounded like. but It's a short comment. Yeah, so the caller's points are all well taken. Yes. Um, the Supreme Court did address over 100 years ago the government's ability to require vaccination, and they decided quite soundly that the government had that capacity to require vaccination. The Interstate Commerce Clause has been widely interpreted and applied throughout uh, just about every aspect of um, American life, and it certainly could be interpreted to require uh, masking and vaccination amongst the population, but don't expect this U.S. Supreme Court to uh, belly up to that bar. Um, so it's it's an interesting um, point that he makes. You know, as for this caller and the previous caller's comments, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. It certainly you know has been an ongoing concern of mine. You know, I can talk about the facts until I'm blue in the face, but I'm not really sure I'm persuaded persuading the unpersuaded at this point. But, you know, more on that later. We will be in a different and better place two weeks from now in terms of COVID. Um, and All right, we'll we got 10 then. seconds. Okay, right. thanks, Drew. This is Alicia Bales live in the studio. Thanks for listening. It's the coronavirus update, the local coronavirus update. We'll talk to you in two weeks. This has been the local coronavirus update podcast with Dr. Drew Colfax, Produced by Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can also hear us live on the web at www.kzyx.org. If you'd like to listen live and call in to the local coronavirus update, you can find us every first and third Tuesday of the month at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Our live studio call-in number is 707-895-2448. You can also email your questions to dj at kzyx.org. And you can always listen to our podcast, KZYX Local Coronavirus Update with Dr. Drew Colfax. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is Bad News Blues by Lucinda Williams, and our outro music is a song called Stumptown, composed and performed by Zach Borden. I'm Alicia Bales. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.